So Jesus goes right at this. He starts right out talking about sin. Sin is a topic that we have all had familiarization with. We're all familiar with it. Uh, it's something that um, we've either sinned or we have been sinned against because that is how it is in community and in relationships. And so he talks about how we're to resolve these things. And oftentimes, we, we, in a real simple way, we talk about sin as coming in the form of thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed. Those are sort of the three terms that are used when it talks about a definition for sin in our lives. In the Bible, it says, he who knows the good he should do, but doesn't do it, sins. So when we have knowledge about what is right and wrong, and we don't do the right thing, then that is a definition to you of sin. Now, we're not talking about little quirks that people have, you know. Somebody has an annoying laugh, like a cackle of some kind that just pierces your ears, or somebody, you know, slurps their soup instead of eating it with a spoon. Those are things that are just quirkiness, quirkiness things. That's we, we make those right or wrong issues, and they're not necessarily right or wrong issues because depending on where you live, it's perfectly fine in some situations. No, sin is uh, uh, something that we fall short of, missing the mark of the standard that God would set for us. We understand sort of what sin is. So he's going to talk about this from the standpoint of those who sin, uh, those who uh, cause others to fall into sin, and those who have been sinned against. So those are kind of the three uh, categories that he addresses here, those three things. So uh, let's go ahead and go to the scripture now, and we'll look at this. Jesus said to his disciples, now he's speaking to believers here. He's not speaking to a, a, a general crowd of people out there with this expectation. He's speaking to people who are disciples of his. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Another way of defining that is temptation to sin will come. It said it's going to happen. It's bound to happen. It happened to Jesus. He was tempted. It says in all ways, but yet without sin. So he tells them, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, Forgive him. So that's where we're going to stop for right now. So he's talking about the whole notion of sin. First of all, that temptation is going to come. Temptation is not sin. I think we all understand that. We are all tempted. Jesus was tempted, as I said. So being tempted, there's no... Everyone is going to live with temptations in your life. Everyone is going to have a constant companion of temptation that's going to follow you along. But what Jesus says is, is don't fall into the temptation. Don't commit the sin. Also, you should not be in a position where you're causing other people to sin, where you're encouraging them to do the wrong things. 
And he said it would be better for someone who, has a, who does that. He really is harsh on those who would be leading others into a temptation to sin by saying that it would be better for them if they had a millstone, which was what, a very heavy stone that was used to grind and ground up food and flour and such, and, and have that be hung around their neck and thrown into the ocean. And, and, and then there would be no getting out of that situation. He says he's very harsh on those who would lead other people into sin. So he's telling them this so that they would understand that. When he talks about little ones, he means those who are innocent, not necessarily just children, but anyone who is of innocence, because that's the person that really can be easily swayed and tempted by others. And he's talking to them as believers and as disciples, and so someone who's a new believer in Christ, who's just learning what this is all about, can be led astray by someone who is a current follower of Christ. It's easy to lead people astray, to use them for our purposes and to manipulate them. And then he says that those who do sin uh, should repent and they should seek forgiveness. And it's important, like in a church like ours, it's called Community Church, where we have to live this out every day. We live in a small community where we rub shoulders and interact with each other all through the week, and sometimes we find ourselves sitting in church worshiping God with a person who has, has either we have sinned against or a person who has sinned against us or whatever that might be, and that's an uncomfortable situation to be in. And so Jesus, who is all about reconciled relationships, says you need to live in reconciled relationships. If we're going to be a community, this is how we do it. Yes, someone is going to sin against you. And yes, sometimes you're going to be the one who sins. But in the midst of all of that, what we need to extend is a person who sins needs to repent. They need to come clean about the sin that they have committed. Sometimes they need to be confronted about that sin by another person because they're not aware of it or they don't have anyone who's coming to them and saying, listen, you know, you have some things in your life and we wouldn't do this to someone outside the body of, of Christ, outside of the community of faith, because that's not the, what their greatest need is at that moment. Their greatest need is for Jesus. But when you become a member of the community of, of God, the family of faith, there are some expectations that we place upon you in regard to your behavior and how you should act. And if it's openly sinful and we see patterns of that, we have a responsibility and go and do that. And we've done that with people. We've had to do that from time to time. People have had to do that and come to me and, and, and share with me some areas of my life. And we've had to do that with others. And how we respond to that has a lot to do with how we handle it. Some people get angry and they say, you're not the boss of me, basically, and they're gone. They, they don't come back. But our intentions were not to just get into the details of their life and be judges over them. It was in a loving action. It was to seek their highest and their greatest good. And so when we go to someone who's obviously not walking with Christ but identifies themselves as a Christian, and we happen to share with them some things in their life that they need to deal with, and how they respond to that has a lot to do with how that's going to come out. So we've done that in the past and seen that work sometimes and not work sometimes. But it's coming clean. Repentance is not diminishing what you've done. It's trying to understand it from the viewpoint of the person who has been wounded. 
The person who has done the wounding will never totally understand. The person who has done the hurting will never totally understand the depth to which they've hurt that person. Does that make sense? The person who does the hurting to another person can never fully understand the depth of what they did. They can try to understand, but they will maybe never deeply understand. Because they will. we always like to point ourselves in a nicer light. Don't we like to try to put ourselves in a nice light? So we'll diminish our sin a little bit. We won't make it as grievous as it might be. We'll deny it. We'll downplay it. We might blame the other person for causing us to sin. But repentance really comes when we are cut to the heart over our sin, before God and before another human being. So that's a very important thing that Jesus teaches us here in his teaching to his disciples. So dealing with those who have sinned against us, that becomes more of a challenge in some ways uh, than actually trying to deal and come to grips with sin. When you have been sinned against, he has some really hard words to share here. He talks about forgiveness. And he talks about forgiveness not just in a one-time experience, but he says even if it is seven times in a day. In a day. So I can ask maybe to you, what is your number? At what point do you stop forgiving a person for something that they've done? Or you keep reviewing what the hurt was to you and you keep bringing that sin back into you into your life and you've become bitter over it. Now, what is your number? It's like a person who is sick in sin. It, you know, it's not like a doctor who's going to say, I'm, well, I'm sorry, you know, I've already seen you five times uh, this year and I'm sorry you're sick, but I'm not going to see you the sixth time because you've already been here five times. He's not going to do that. He's going to continue to try to, to heal and treat and help another person. Seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent. What does it say you're to do? Forgive him. This is hard. It doesn't mean you forget the harm that was done to you. It doesn't mean that you have to restore fully the relationship that you previously had. You should walk with a little awareness there. It will, there is some consequence and damage that can come through deep sin in a relationship. In some cases, it means a full and total restoration. But forgiveness on our part, we have no choice here. He gives us no exception clause here. He gives us no room to make an excuse or to say, oh, you know, you don't have to forgive that person. That was really bad what they did to you. Nope. Jesus was fully aware of all of these topics that he was sharing with, with them right now and what was to come. Now, in forgiving them, what you're doing is you're get letting go of your right to judge them. You let go of your right to judge them for their sin and you turn them over to God. That's your only option for being healthy. The alternative is to build up a root of bitterness inside of your soul and it will begin to destroy you. So, who do you need to forgive? Is there someone you still need to forgive That's you're listening to this message today? And you're, you're stubborn, you've been grieved, you have a right to be grieved, you have a right to be angry, you have a right to be upset, you have a right to be hurt, you have a right to be a victim. 
but you don't have a right to not forgive. That's not a right that you have. And so it's a commandment of Christ. It's for your benefit. So then the disciples do what? What do they say next? The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, it follows right on the basis of this statement that he just made about forgiveness. Jesus knew that this commandment would go down hard, and the disciples heard that, and what their response was saying, you're going to have to increase our faith to believe enough to act out on this, to do this, to do what you're asking us to do, because humanly speaking, this is not possible for us. And of course, as the Bible says, it, what is, it may not be possible for you, but with God, all things are possible. So they ask for more faith, but really what they're needing is they need to see God in his, all of his glory and his power to be able to do that, to believe enough in God and his ways, even if it runs counter to what's inside of us, to do what he wants us to do regardless of what we feel. That's when it's hard. That's when it gets hard, is we do it out of trust and faith in God. Okay, God, you say I need to forgive. Ah, it's going to be really hard for me but I trust you, give me the faith to be able to do this and know that this is the right thing to do because you say this is what I have to do. I'm going to do this and I'm going to trust you. It takes faith to walk this way. Humanly speaking, we can't do that within ourselves. We just can't. It's not within us to do it without faith. But in God, with faith, because our faith is in him, that's possible with him. So then uh, Jesus goes on, and he starts telling some other stories. But he does say the importance is to forgive. And once you do that, you're set free. I want to give you a picture before we get into this. Uh, well, here's where he says about faith. First. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will be obey you. He's saying you can do anything, not you, but your trust in God, because that's the work that God will do for you. All right, I'm going to bring a picture up to you that we took when we were in Florence. This is of an artist. Now, I told you in an email, those of you who get my pastor emails, and if you want to get that, you, you certainly can. I, I send it out about once a week. Um, I told you I was going to find an artist in Florence who will dress up the congregation a little bit, this church in here. <laughs> you know, we're going to paint the ceiling. We're going to put decorations on the beams. We're going to, I mean, when you go in the churches in Europe, th this place is... Plain. Our windows are beautiful, by the way. That's great. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. But this guy right here, we came across him when we were walking back one day. He's right on the Arno River. He's got a small little stand right there. And Lynn and I a lot of times like to pick up a little painting of something from a place we've gone to. And we'd looked at other places and we kind of, you know, we didn't spend a whole lot of time paying attention to that. But when we came across this gentleman here, first of all, we, we were struck by his his countenance, his face, his softness of his bearing, the way in which he, he looked and carried himself. And then we were drawn to his watercolors that he had, and we wanted to get one for our daughter, Julia, and, and one for us. And so we asked him a few questions. Language and, and is always a challenge when you're over there, and use your hands a lot, you know, that helps some. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, we asked him if he had taught if he had gone to school to learn to paint and he said no i just i just watched what others did and started dabbling in it myself and 
you know, and he, all of his, those weren't like reprints. He signs them all on the back and everything. And, and so he went, we bought two, two of his, uh, of his uh, watercolors from him. And when he went to wrap those up for us, what we noticed was he had a withered hand on one hand. It was not very useful to him. He had to use it almost like a, he really only had one useful hand. And, and I show him uh, to you today because this is a man who could have easily walked around as a victim in his life. And we saw plenty of beggars while we were there. People would sit on a street corner with a cup in front of their hands. And pe- some would come on the train and drop off these little notes and say, I'm you know, homeless and I have two kids. And, and, and they were just you know, manipulating people. I'm sure in his life, there were times that people made fun of him. There were things that he couldn't do because of his disability. There were some hardships in his life. I didn't know if he had a, a wife and kids. I think he did. But I, I looked at this man and I thought, here is a man who is standing on the side of a river in Florence, on the Arno River, doing what he can do, and, and he's not... <clears throat> He's being productive, but, but his, just his countenance. He was a soft, he had a soft, gentle bearing about himself. And I thought, this is a man who's, who's free, who's simple. I don't know what his faith is. I have no idea whether he has any faith. But I, I just think, isn't that a beautiful sight? He, he is a more beautiful sight to me than the paintings that he draws. And that's why I took his picture, and I thought it'd be fun to share it with you guys when I did this. Let's move on into the scripture where it talks about what it means to do what our master wants us to do. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. We walk around sometimes with God and we think we should get a pat on the back or a special badge or a star like you used to get in school or a sticky when we do something that pleases God. Oh God, I did this for you, look at that, well how great am I? I I forgave that person who had grieved me. Well, what Jesus is saying is, you've only done what was your duty. You, you don't deserve some special uh, citation for obeying what God has asked you to do. You simply are walking the, and living the life of Jesus because we are under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he is called Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. We are under his authority. We are to do what he wants us to do. It's simple as that, just like a servant who is expected to work. So he's saying in this little parable, he's saying, well, after he's plowed the field, don't you think the master should just say, oh, thank you, that was really nice. Now let's, let's give you a break and you can sit down and have dinner with us. No, no, there's still supper to prepare. It seems a little cruel, it seems a little difficult, but honestly, it's just like we're unworthy servants. We've done just our duty. Now I'm going to bring you another picture up. One of the things that you have in Italy is gelato. Gelato... How do you describe gelato? I mean, you just can't. It's just you got to have it every day. 
So, you know, for Linda, seeing all these rotundas and looking at all that, somehow or another, I can't understand how, we started looking like the rotundas ourselves. <laughs> and I think gelato had something to do with it. Um, so we, you know, we every day, in addition to figuring out where we wanted to have dinner that was kind of a nice place to go eat, uh, we, gelato had to be on the menu at some time in the day. So this, uh, we were in, in a little hill town in Tuscany called Volterra. And in Volterra, it's, it's one of those old little towns. And so we were looking for lunch, and we saw this sign that says panini. Well, panini is a sandwich, and it's a sandwich in Italian. So we, we said, oh, do you have panini? She says, no. And really what it was was it was a, a, like an ice cream sandwich, a gelato sandwich. It was what it was. Um, but she said, but they have paninis across the street over there. And we said, well, thank you so much. We appreciate that. And uh, then I said, we'll come back. She says, do you promise? And I said, yeah, we'll come back. Because she was standing outside the shop. And her name was Georgie, we found out later. And Georgie was someone we observed out there. We had our panini. We came back. We got gelato from her. She was very sweet. She was very kind. Uh, had a great smile. And so we sat... We, we, one, t one time we had to walk and eat gelato, all right? And because we were trying to catch, I think, a train. <laughs> you don't walk and eat gelato. You sit, you stand, you stand one place and you savor it, okay? So that was my mistake with Linda. She, I could never get her to move anywhere when she had gelato in her hands. We just had to stay. So we were leaning against the wall across from the gelato shop and I watched this girl as she worked. If there wasn't somebody in, their shop, in her shop, she would come out and stand by the doorway, and she would just smile and have her little outfit on, and then sometimes people would come in. And then when there wasn't somebody there one time, I saw her take a rag, and she wiped down the entire front case of the, the window there so you could see the gelato. And so I asked her, I said, so is this your shop? She said, no. I said, really? She said, wow, you, you really act like this is your shop. And she said, this is what she said to me. I work for God and for myself. That's what she said. And she said, do you know what I mean? And I said, I know what you mean. I said, I know what you mean. So what she was saying was, this isn't just a job for me. This isn't just, I, I believe in God and so my work ethic, my belief system, is that I'm going to do my best, not just for some boss, but I'm going to do my best for God because he, I'm working and serving him. And that's why I took her picture, and, and I wanted to share her with you, knowing that we would have this passage coming up here uh, this Sunday when we came back, of an example of a servant who only did what was their duty, but did it as though they were serving a higher master, a higher king in their lives. And, and so that, that to me, I, 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 that really struck, struck me. So finally, Jesus just basically finishes up with that idea that we are unworthy slaves, some translations. We have done only what, was, what we ought to have done. So in this passage of 10 verses right here, we have a lot. We have the idea that everyone sins. 
Temptation is not sin. When we do sin, we repent of that sin and ask forgiveness. When others sin against us, we are to forgive them, not seven, seven times even in the same day. We are to increase our faith in God who gives us the ability to do these very things that are so hard for us to do in our heart and in our spirit. And finally, he talks about the importance of following what the master wants you to do, regardless of whether or not you think it's right or, or wrong. It doesn't, it's not your opinion that counts here. It's what God says in believing in him and that he'll give you the strength to do it. And if we do that, our response isn't, that, oh, you know, what a great, no, what a great person you are. Oh, look what you did for God. Look, look how you followed and believed in him. No, our response simply in humility is, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have taught us so much in the word about life and about relationships and how, they were, how they're supposed to work, how challenging they are as we rub up against each other every day as we wound one another, as we disappoint one another, as we sometimes let each other down, as we sometimes have to create some tough love and go and confront sinful situations. And Lord, we are all your servants. We are all your servants. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I will only say this to close, that Jesus went through all the things and more of what he asked. No one was sinned against more than Jesus. No one was abused physically, emotionally, spiritually. No one was abandoned and let down more than Jesus. No one had friends and family and others disappoint him and let him down, abandoned him, left him, betrayed him, turned their backs on him, ran his reputation through the ground. Nobody went through the horrific things that Jesus went through, and yet from a cross, as he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Our closing hymn. Uh, someone's going to have to tell me what it is, I think. I'm a little rusty here. been gone a couple weeks. Um, Amazing Grace. What better song today for this message for each other? Number 378, verses 1, 2, and 6. Let's stand together.
to circle up, please. That would be great, real quickly. Have a little sharing time before we depart today. It's good to see everybody's faces. We missed you.